Well, have you ever forgotten something that was very, very important? I'm not talking about, you know, you forgot to get sour cream at the grocery store and you had to go back and take a second trip. I mean, have you really forgotten something like really important, like maybe like a child or something like that, you know? <laughs> now, people were pointing at me and laughing, which is something I'm not used to. But people remember one or two occasions where I've left one of my children in the care of others accidentally. Uh, I remember <laughs> when, well, shortly after uh, our middle son, Eli, was born, uh, we, we were going to Target for some reason. I think he was about a week old. We were going to Target. They were having some type of children's kind of reading there. And I dropped my wife and Joseph off at the door. And what I was supposed to do was drop the car off and bring Elijah in. Well, what happened is I just got out of the car and I just come walking into Target and I see my wife's face. She examines my hands and finds that they're empty. Her eyes widen and she goes, where is Eli? You know? So, and at that moment, I realized <laughs> in the dead of winter, I had left him in the car as he lay there sleeping. So I quickly went out and got him. Everything was fine. Now, some of these folks are pointing and laughing at me because they remember one occasion where uh, I think we were, <laughs> we were at the Archer's home for a fellowship, a monthly fellowship lunch. And my wife had left, and she was supposed to take the kids with her. I thought she had taken uh, Joseph with her, but she, she forgot. So I left the party, thinking that everything was fine. So I actually am pulling onto our street, and I get a call from her, and she says, do you have Joseph? You know, and if she's asking me if I have him, then that's usually not a good sign. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think I needed to buy some time. So I just repeated her question to her, do I have Joseph? You know, I needed to think about it some more. Then I realized that I didn't have Joseph, and I went back to the Archer's home, and there everybody was looking at me like I was the worst parent in the world. And I was hoping that they had cover for me and helped me save some face in the eyes of my son, but they hadn't. And he was very disappointed that his mother had left him. And I affirmed that his, it was his mother that had left him, and I gave him, I think, a sucker or something. But I forgot something that was very important, obviously, and that was my kids. But I think that of all the things that we can forget, there are things that we can stand to forget, and obviously things that we can't stand to forget. Children certainly fall on that list. But I think when it comes to matters of faith, um, things uh, that directly impact our souls, things that directly impact who we are in Christ and who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live this life, According to the scriptures, there are certainly things that we cannot, we absolutely cannot afford to forget. And I think many of us live less than satisfying Christian lives because we've forgotten some things. We've neglected to adhere to certain things. We've let certain things fall off the radar. And one day we wake up and our life with Jesus isn't rich and it's not satisfying and doesn't have the punch that it used to have. When we read the scriptures, we see a picture of the life that we're supposed to live and we look at our own life and we see gaping holes in that. And what we realize is that over time, time and circumstances and the culture that we live in has sort of robbed us. And basically what it has caused us to do is forget really important things that really rob us. There are holes in our understanding. There are holes in the gospel as we understand it. And that's pretty much what I want to talk about over the next few weeks. And today I begin a brand new series that I'm simply calling A Hole in the Gospel. 
a hole in the gospel. And this, um, this, this series is based on the book by Richard Stearns. And Richard Stearns is the CEO of World Vision. It's one of the most popular and most impactful humanitarian organizations, a Christian organization. And Richard Stearns is the CEO of that. And Richard Stearns, in this book, uh, tells his story of how he was climbing the corporate ladder, making lots and lots of money, living in an affluent suburb, going to a very wealthy, progressive church, and God really rocked his world by calling him out of that world and calling, calling him to be the CEO of World Vision. And through that experience, as well as through his experience with World Vision, seeing hunger and seeing poverty and seeing just devastating effects of the imbalances and social inequalities in the world, how God has just really shifted his thinking and completely turned his world upside down. This is a fascinating book, by the way. We're going to base this series off of this book. We're also going to be doing studies in our weekly small groups um, uh, based on this book. And many of you, you want to get this book. Um, You don't have to read the book in order for it to make sense here on the weekends or even in your small groups. But I, I totally recommend this book to you because it's fascinating. It goes much deeper than we can go on Sunday mornings and in our small groups. The books, by the way, are for sale today for $10. That's very uh, reasonable cost. If you want to buy a book today, basically you would just pay the person who's um, uh, um, handling the lunch today. You would just grab a book off this table over here and pay them $10 each. And if you, if you steal one, Jesus will know. But Hole in Our Gospel <laughs> is the series. Hold My Gospel is a series, and basically um, this sermon series looks at what we might be forgetting in this faith journey, to ask the question, what does God expect of us? Are we missing something that he expects of us? And through this series, we'll be exploring over the next five or six weeks as we try to patch this hole in the gospel and look forward to living the whole gospel, like complete gospel, and that is one devoid of any holes or any blemishes or things like that. And I want to be clear about the title of this book or in the, the title and the main thrust of this series. We're not suggesting that the gospel is incomplete. Far from it. The gospel is more than complete. And if we live and adhere to the whole gospel, we will have the rich and satisfying lives that Jesus promised. We will do the things that the Bible instructs us to do. And because of that, our world will be better. So there's no hole in the gospel, but rather there's a hole in our understanding of who God is. The hole in our understanding of what God expects from us and what we should be doing, how we should be living out this life on this earth. So there's no hole in the gospel. There's a hole in our understanding. And the goal of this is to patch this thing up. So this hole didn't just get here, right? This hole didn't just form in our understanding, 21st century Western culture, uh, but actually 700 years before the birth of Jesus, people, God's people that is, were missing the point as well. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets and what God had to say to his people through those prophets, you'll find that many of God's people were getting this very same thing wrong. And basically, they were getting, what they were getting wrong was how to deal with people, like how to be the hands and feet of God to hurting and broken people. The prophet Micah in, prophet, uh, in Micah chapter 6, starting at verse 8, addresses this issue as he speaks to God, uh, God's people on his behalf. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the, high God, before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? 
Verse 8, he has shown you, Micah says, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. So Mike is just sort of asking a reflective question, uh, saying aloud what might be the ponderings of God's people as it relates to what God expects from them. And the people are wondering, hey, what should I do to please this God? Do I bring him perfect offerings? Do I bring him sacrificial things? And obviously they're bearing in mind their dutiful you know, offerings of various cattle and livestock and perhaps even some produce. Is this what it's going to take to appease this God? And, and Micah says, what God wants is for you to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus affirms this as he's speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the very pious people who thought themselves to be better than others. He says this to them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. He says, What sorrow awaits you, O teachers of religious law, you church folks, <laughs> you Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus calls them, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of God's law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things, right? And we just talked you know, a little bit ago about tithing and giving and the importance of those things. So Jesus isn't saying that those sorts of things are bad or those sorts of things aren't necessary. But what he was saying to these religious folks, what he was saying to these church folks, and what he's therefore saying to us is that, listen, you guys are so careful to tithe off the tiniest bit of income, to give and to be ritualistic and do the, the smallest little thing just so that you can walk with your head high and look your nose down on other people. But Jesus says you're forgetting, you're forgetting the most important things. You're forgetting the things that matter most to me. You're forgetting the things that I examine the most carefully, and those three things are justice, mercy, and faith, or faithfulness. And Jesus says, listen, tithing, that's great. Giving, that's great. All those other things, those are fantastic. But don't forget the most important things, or in other words, don't have a gaping hole in your understanding of what I expect from you. Because if there's a hole in your understanding of what God expects from you, if there's a hole in your sort of knowledge base of what God expects from you or what God expects you to be walking out as you go about your life with others, and as you go about your life with God, if there's a hole in that understanding, there's going to be a hole in your walk. If there are voids in your understanding of what God expects, you can most certainly expect that there will be a void or missing aspects or things that are left undone, omissions, if you will, in your, in your tangible walk with God and walk with others. And Jesus, as well as Micah, draws into sharp focus the most important things. Draws into sharp focus what we should be focusing on, and that's none other than justice, mercy, and faithfulness, or Michael calls it walking humbly, faithfully with God. And these are the most important things. And therein lies the whole in our gospel. Therein lies the whole in our understanding of what God expects from us. And throughout the course of this series, man, we're going to really get into some stuff. My hope is that you are thoroughly challenged by this material. 
My hope is that as you come face to face with the reality of who God is, and not just who God is, but what he expects from us, that your life will never be the same. This stuff ought to impact how you treat people. This stuff ought to impact your purchasing and spending habits, right? This stuff ought to impact how you allocate your time, your resources, and your treasure. This stuff ought to change the game completely. So if you're not looking to have your world turned completely upside down, then maybe just get a nice sports package and just maybe stay away for about five or six weeks. If you're not looking to have your world turned upside down, then maybe this isn't the type of stuff that you need to hear. Because the type of stuff that we want to talk about over the next few weeks, you can't unknow those things. You can't unhear these things. And I'm a firm believer that once we know better, God expects us to do better. I'll say it again. Once we know better, God expects us to do better. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4 as just we get into this and paint a really comprehensive picture of who God is, who Jesus is, and what he expects from us. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14 this morning. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me in your Bibles? I really encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Many of you use your phones these days for your Bible. That's fine. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles on the edges of the row. You can use one of those. We'll also be projecting it on the screens here today. I'm just calling this talk, by the way, uh, What is the Whole? I want to identify the whole this morning. Luke chapter 4. Before I, before I read that, let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this church and this opportunity, God, to stand before your people and administer your word. God, I just know. That so many of us really lack a thorough understanding of who you are and what you expect from us, God. And it's because of that, Lord, that we live lives that are less than what you, um, what you call us to. And I pray, Lord, that you would just speak through me today. I pray that these words would be clear. I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't, people wouldn't hear any condemnation or there wouldn't be any guilt or any shame attached with these words. But rather, you would use these words to inform us, to enlighten us to challenge us, and more importantly, Lord, to change us this morning. Uh, Would you speak truth, and may that truth cut deep to the core of our hearts. May we be challenged and changed. Lord, move me out of the way this morning so that your truth and that your light might shine through. We thank you in advance for all you're going to deposit today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 4, we'll start at verse 14. And let me just set the stage here for what's going on. Jesus so he returns to his hometown, and he goes, as was his custom, to the synagogues. And, you know, the people are excited to hear from Jesus because Jesus, you know, has, has you know, there's a lot of buzz about Jesus. And people are excited, this hometown boy, like, he's becoming famous, he's making a name for himself. Like, there's a little bit of buzz going around. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, and basically what happens is, you know, an attendant comes up to Jesus, and they hand him, they hand him the scroll. And basically what they want to do is the customary thing is to read from the scroll. They read a little bit of law, and they read from the prophets. And basically uh, the teachers just sort of read from that and just sort of give a little talk or give a little... Um, exposition on those particular passages. And it just so happens that the, the scroll that was handed to Jesus this time around was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that Isaiah gives some very specific prophecies about the Messiah and what Messiah would do. And it just so happens that the scroll that Jesus reads from today contains a prophecy about Jesus himself. So imagine uh, Jesus' delight 
when he gets and reads from this scroll and imagine the, the, the atmosphere in the room as Jesus begins to tell and read from this scroll that basically talks about himself. And Jesus is basically giving what, what some would refer to as his first sermon here in Luke chapter 4. Uh, verse 14 is where we'll start. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Verse 16, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. I said last week that I really am impressed by Jesus for, uh, for many reasons, but I really drawn to just his smoothness and his swagger. I could just imagine Jesus standing before that crowd, perfectly calm, completely comfortable in his own skin, reading this ancient scroll that's basically his own like press clippings. And I, I just imagine Jesus reading this and being very smooth and very humble at the same time as he presents this good news about what the Messiah would do and who the Messiah might be. And I would just imagine the shock and surprise as people were perhaps hearing for the first time, maybe they thought something was special about this guy. Maybe they thought he had some type of divine purpose, but perhaps they didn't make the connection that this cool guy that they had heard so much cool stuff about was the expected Messiah who would do what the prophet Isaiah had foretold. But there before them, Jesus basically says, all this cool stuff that they're talking about, all this revolutionary stuff that's really going to change the game, that's really going to turn the tables of poverty and oppression and the imbalance that exists in our society, all of this cool stuff, yeah, they're talking about me. All of this really cool stuff that makes your eyes just sort of widen and a smile just sort of come on your face, all that stuff, yeah, they're talking about me. They're talking about me. That good news that you hear, that's the stuff that I'm going to do. And as we look through this passage, specifically at the two verses that detail what Messiah would do, we see five specific things, five distinct pieces of good news. And many refer to this as Jesus' sort of mission statement. His mission statement is basically, what are you about? What do you come to do? What's your purpose? What are you going to busy yourself doing? What are you here for? And Jesus basically says, all that stuff that Isaiah talked about, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm about. Five specific things. The first is to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, to give sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, excuse me, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These five specific things very good news, awesome news. The good thing about these five things, the great thing I should say, is that they have both spiritual meaning and a literal meaning. 
In other words, there's, a, there's an understanding about these five specific things that have a deep and meaningful spiritual impact, but they're not to just sort of be put into a spiritual box. These promises or these things that Jesus said that he would do when he come on, as he came on the earth have very physical and literal meanings as well. And Richard Stearns, in his book, The Hole in Our Gospel, suggests that Jesus came to impact three specific realms that basically encompass all of life for us. And these three realms are spiritual, physical, and social. Spiritual, physical, and social. And it just so happens that those three realms correspond with the two passages that we read earlier that deal specifically with the three areas of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So we're talking about spiritual realm, physical realm, and the social realm, which, uh, which go hand in hand with justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And this morning, I want to explain what the whole gospel looks like, right? The whole of the good news. And hopefully through explaining and painting a clear sort of broad picture of what the whole gospel looks like, we can all specifically identify for our, ourselves where our particular holes lie, right? We're all different people from different backgrounds, and those different backgrounds have shaped who we are, and that certainly includes our deficiencies. That certainly uh, includes our misunderstandings or the misinformation that we have specifically about God and his kingdom. And as we paint a picture of the whole gospel, the goal here today is that you will discover for yourself where your hole lies and what, what realm that exists. So I think the whole gospel, as we said before, includes three specific realms, and I just want to jog through those today in light of the five things that Jesus has come to do. The first thing is that the whole gospel includes the spiritual. Many of us understand this. Many of us don't have to be told this, but it's, basic. it's a basic understanding. And few of us, but some of us, have gaping holes in our spiritual understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, and therefore what he expects us to be living out. And it's for that reason that I want to make clear today that there is a solid spiritual realm or spiritual aspect to the good news. Michael calls this spiritual realm walking humbly before your God or walking humbly with God. Jesus calls this simply faithfulness. He calls it faithfulness, a daily, constant, unwavering, sturdy walk with the Lord. And, a f- and faithfulness comes from a rich, uh, deep, and meaningful understanding, a thorough understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us personally, with us personally, and that deeply impacts who we are and how we live it out. So the first thing that Jesus sort of deals with in this sort of spiritual realm is that he says he will come to preach good news to the poor. And you have to understand that in Jesus' day, if you were rich, if you were wealthy, people just sort of automatically assumed that your wealth was a sign of God's favor. That if you had resource, doesn't matter how you got that resource, doesn't matter how you came by that, that that was just sort of God smiling on you. You must be somebody that God really likes because you have resource. Or you have sort of enviable things. And obviously, when you read the scriptures, it debunks that. Right? So in the same vein, people consider that if you were poor, if you lacked physical resource, if you were without some basic need, 
that somehow you must have sinned and upset God, and so therefore you're sort of being penalized and you're being punished, and therefore you're of low status because God's angry with you and you are worthless, you know, because of that. And obviously, if you look at the scripture, it debunks that as well. So what's the good news for the poor? The good news for the spiritually poor, because we're dealing with the spiritual realm here, is no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what the state of your soul, the good news is that God has something for you. And that there's something available for and to you that will radically change your life and remove this stigma that somehow God is angry with you. The good news is that everybody who is spiritually poor, spiritually destitute, spiritually impoverished can have access, if they want, to what God has to offer. That's what Messiah came to do, to preach this good news to the spiritually poor, and I think we all kind of qualified for that at some point. Many of us here today are spiritually poor, and we ought to do a Jesus lap around this place because the good news comes to us that Christ accepts us no matter what, that God loves us, right? What else does Jesus come to do in the spiritual sense? Proclaim freedom from the to, freedom for the prisoner. Well, prisoner, I mean, are we talking about physical captivity? No, we're talking about spiritual captivity. What are we captive to? We're captive to our main problem, the thing that robs us of everything that God wants to give us, and that is sin. Sin. And I've said before that sin is not just these sort of devious things we do behind closed doors, but rather sin is just our own agenda, our desire to do things, you know, have it our way, to do things and do, to do life on our own terms. And that sin, among other things, creates this huge cavity, you know, sort of cavity between us and God, and it leaves us on our own by ourselves, away from God's provision, away from his love, away from his good news. And Jesus says, basically, what I came to do is I came to break the power of sin and let these folks free so they can experience the fullness and the richness of the kingdom of God. That's good news, folks, in the spiritual realm. Jesus says, I came to give sight to the blind. Again, and much like poverty, people assume that if you were physically sick, then you had done something. You defended God. The scripture debunks that, right? Religious leaders um, felt like, you know, they were special because they had all of their uh, physical faculties. And oftentimes, Jesus referred to the church folks as spiritually blind, right? These are almost always the enemies of Jesus as we look throughout his life in the New Testament, and Jesus often referred to them as spiritually blind. Why? Because they couldn't see the things that Jesus was trying to set forth. They couldn't understand the spiritual workings of the kingdom of God. So therefore, you know, they, they forfeited a lot of stuff that Jesus wanted to offer them. But yet Jesus brings good news to them because this good news impacts them, the spiritually blind, the enemies of God, as it were. The good news comes to them as well. Jesus said, I came to give sight to the spiritually blind. I came to release the oppressed, people bound by sin, their sin and sins that have committed, uh, been committed to them and against them. Jesus said, I came to open the cage of oppression and set the captive, set the oppressed free. Jesus also says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, we're still talking about the spiritual realm. And this year of the, uh, the Lord's favor refers to the Old Testament year of Jubilee, which basically said every 50 years, these uh, sort of slaves uh, would be set free. Their debts would be canceled, and they would receive a clean slate. 
And we're talking specifically about people who were what you might call indentured servants. In other words, they, they owed a debt that they could not pay, and so because they couldn't pay it, they were just sent into slavery to sort of pay that debt, to work the debt off. And the Old Testament year of Jubilee said that every 50 years, that people who owned slaves had to not only release those slaves, but to, 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 to completely, completely forgive the debt. Now, if you are bound by indentured servitude, this is really good news for you. And the connection to us is this, that we owe God, because of our sin, a debt that we could never, ever, ever pay. Can I say that again? We owe a debt to God because of our sin and our selfishness and our unwillingness to walk away from the things, you know, the snacks of life. We owe God a debt that we can't possibly pay. And for God to proclaim for us, in a spiritual sense, the year of the Lord's favor, basically, like those indentured servants, we are released from the debt that we owe to God and we are put back into the mainstream of society again, which has major implications, which I don't have time to go into today. This, friends, is good news. And to understand this good news uh, produces a measure of faithfulness in the walk of the believer that comes from no other place. And this is what it means to walk humbly, to walk faithfully with God, is to understand this good news that Jesus offers us in this sort of spiritual sense. The whole gospel includes a very powerful, a very rich spiritual realm that we need not ignore, that we need not ignore. But it doesn't stop there. The whole gospel also includes the physical realm. And some of us work really hard to just sort of put our understanding of who God is and to keep it locked in a spiritual box. I don't really want this to impact any physical sense. I don't want this to impact me physically. There's nothing tangible about this. I love to keep this in the abstract. And if I keep it in the abstract, I certainly won't be a physical instrument of God's peace and of God's wholeness in the world around me. But many of us fall short. Many of us are whole in our understanding of who God is, the whole in our gospel, generally for many of us lie in this physical sense, in this physical sense. And both Micah and Jesus refer to this particular realm, particularly the outworking of our understanding of this realm as mercy, as mercy, how we interact with other people, how we take our understanding of the good news of the gospel in a physical sense, in the physical realm, the outworking of that. Jesus and Michael referred to that as mercy. God says, I care deeply about mercy. In fact, you've often heard me say that mercy is the oil of the kingdom of God. In other words, without mercy, without compassion, without a deep sense of uh, uh, compassion and generosity towards others, as was first experienced by us from God, without that, the, the kingdom comes to a screeching halt. You ever had, uh, you ever run out of oil in your car? You you can imagine, you don't have to be a mechanic to understand that your car needs oil or motors need oil. And without it, things come to a screeching halt. Well, Jesus says that mercy is essential. It's an essential component of this sort of physical realm of the good news. The physical realm of the good news. And one of the main things that Jesus talks about as it relates to this physical realm is he says, I come to preach the good news to the poor. 
Again, this whole preaching the good news to the poor has a spiritual significance, but it also has implications as it relates to this thing called mercy or the physical outworking of the good news, the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. And I think that's one of the most rich verses in all the scripture because it, there's a whole lot of implications of that. Blessed are the poor, because the kingdom is theirs. And that's a revolutionary statement if you have the ancient world's understanding of what it means to be poor and what it means to be statusless. To be poor means you don't matter. To be poor means you don't have a voice. Means to, to be poor means you take what we give you and you get over in the corner and be quiet until we call your name. You're not important. You're not significant. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God, which is what you happen to need to be in to have the fullness and the richness of life, the kingdom belongs to the poor, that's a revolutionary statement. The revolutionary statement. And what Jesus is saying is that all of a sudden, in every sense of the word, the poor matter. The poor matter. The folks that were on the bottom are somehow now on the top. Man, that's good news. That's good news. That's great news. That's even better news if you were hearing it in the first century, in first century Palatine. The poor all of a sudden matter. What? It matters figuratively. The poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to you. You are destitute and impoverished spiritually. And not only are you destitute and impoverished, but you're low enough and you're humble enough and you're base enough to be aware of that need. That something larger than yourself, something more significant than yourself has to save you. That's a great place to be, Jesus says. But he was also talking to those who were physically poor. Those who were physically without resource, basic needs, status, physically poor. The kingdom is yours. He's talking to those who were spiritually poor, of course. There's a spiritual realm to this, but we're talking about physically poor. People of no value in society. No security, no worth. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to you. I care about you who are physically, materially poor. Jesus also speaks to those who are sick, who are infirmed. I came to give sight to the blind. If you don't think that has physical, material, literal significance as it relates to the good news, listen, you got another thing coming. I told you earlier, where the sick and infirmed, where they fell, uh, in society. They were perhaps even lower than those who were just poor because if you had some significant, like, you know, illness, right, you weren't really earning living unless you were a beggar. You know, they didn't really live in an accessible culture. By accessible, I mean, they weren't really, like, you didn't have to have ramps to your buildings and, you, you know, there wasn't... Oh, all these social systems that would take care of those who were physically sick or those who were lame or those who were blind. And so their status actually fell quite below those who were actually just materially poor. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, spent lots and lots of time with sick people. And he didn't just spend time with them stroking their hair or throwing coins into their, you know, change cup. Jesus spent meaningful time with them. And what he did most significantly of all is he healed them. He healed them. He healed them, man. He says, listen, I can give you some change. 
Listen, I can sit here for, with you for a little bit and I can make you feel better, but guess what? If I change your whole situation, if I change the source of what's making you lame or the source of what's making you impoverished, then I've just basically changed your life. And not only have I changed your physical life, what I did for your legs or what I did for your eyes, I want to do for your whole soul. And this is what Jesus came to do to the physically sick. Think about the story in Matthew chapter 20. Well, the blind, two blind guys, they're shouting at Jesus. They heard he was coming, they're shouting, Master, look, you know, pay attention to us, come and interact with us. And all the while, the crowd, they're saying, listen, be quiet. Don't you know your place? Jesus is important. Think he's got time to deal with two blind, worthless guys? Think he's got time for that? You think Jesus cares about that? And Jesus through his actions, says, of course I care about that. That's who I came for. That's who I came for. Jesus says, that's what I do. Haven't you read the prophet Isaiah's, you know, mention of me? I was in the paper, Jesus says. And this is what it says I come to do about. This is what it says I came to do. This is what it says I care about the sick, the people on the bottom. Not to just hang out with them, but to heal them and to change the situation. Jesus interacts with real people with real issues took this whole spiritual stuff, which is vitally important, out of this spiritual abstract box and brought it to real life with real people, with real issues. And guess what? If you think that's not what we're called to do, you think that's not what we're called to do, boy, have you missed it. Boy, do we misunderstand who Jesus is. Boy, do we misunderstand what Jesus expects. And in this physical realm, it's good news because Jesus says, I came to deal with your real issues, the sources of your brokenness, the sources of your poverty and oppression. I came to deal with those issues head on. Listen, I'm painting a stroke of the whole gospel here. And many of you have found your hole already. While some of you are saying, you know what? I knew all that. Let's keep going. Let's see what else you got, right? But there's a third realm here. The whole gospel includes the social realm, the social realm, the social realm. And for many of us, this is perhaps the one that's far enough away from us where we can get, you know, sort of, we can just, we can't really see it off in the distance, can't really see how this impacts us, can't really see how there's meaningful, active ways that we can participate in this. And for many of us, the hole in our gospel, the hole in our understanding lies in this social Micah and Jesus refer to this realm or the outworking of the good news in this particular realm as justice. As justice. As justice. And while mercy deals with the physical oppressed person and their tangible issue, this whole concept of justice deals with systematic, institutional things that cause those, you know, individual sort of issues, the individual brokenness. I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. In other words, we're not just to go by the highways and byways, bandaging up those figuratively and literally, those who are injured or those who have been oppressed or those who have been trampled under the foot of injustice, we are supposed to look for the system 
that is causing it or the system that's allowing it. And we, the hands and feet of Jesus, in a very social sense, we're supposed to destroy the systems, the fight, the systems, the push back against the systems that create these problems for individual real people. And to help you understand this better, I heard someone put it plainly. They said the difference between mercy and justice is this. You happen by a river. You want to see people floating downstream, screaming for their lives. Mercy gets those people out of the river. Man, these people are drowning. Let me get them out of the river. You can spend all day doing that. Person after person coming. Mercy grabs them out of the river. What justice does, it says, let me go upstream and see who's putting all these people in the river. Let me walk upstream and let me find out who the joker is that's throwing all of these people in. If I can deal with the joker that's throwing all these people in, listen, I won't have to spend so much time fishing all these folks out. Now we have a responsibility to be merciful, right? To act and respond with compassion. Oftentimes before Jesus healed somebody, he says Jesus moved with compassion and he healed folks. But I think that Jesus expects us to take a shot at the systems, institutions, the practices, the industries that cause this type of brokenness on profound levels. This is missing. This is the hole in most of our gospel. We forgot about the systems. Just go along with our consumer lives. We really appreciate the, the convenience of the products that we buy and the services we get, and we give no thought to the person on the other end of those systems, the other end of those institutional things that are perhaps getting a short end of the stick. We give no thought to that. But for many of us, the Lord wants us to zoom out today and consider that the hole in our understanding of who Jesus is and therefore the outworking for us of the good news might lie in the sort of systematic social aspect of this. And one of the things that Jesus came to do, as we see in this passage in Luke, as we saw in Isaiah 61, is to give sight to the blind. Major social implications. Give sight to the blind. The blind, the sick, the handicapped, even in our culture today, are discriminated against. And to give them sight stops the discrimination. To give them a voice, to give them status, puts them back in the mainstream of society. We're talking about a social aspect. So all of a sudden, the healing of them and restoring of their physical faculties does more for them. There's a social impact on giving sight to the blind and healing people who have major social deficiencies that puts them back in the game. It puts them back in the game. It restores them to where God had imagined for them to be when he designed them, right? To give sight to the blind, the social implications of that. Jesus says, I came to release the oppressed. And sometimes there's a correlation between those who are blind and those who are oppressed. Come to release those who are been taken advantage of. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, if you read them uh, sort of back to back, sometimes you might mistake and think that you're reading the same passage over and over again because a lot of the Old Testament prophets had the same message, oftentimes for some of the same people. And their message was this. Woe unto you. Shame on, on you. God's going to deal with you, those who take advantage of, those who don't have status. 
those of you who create systems and put your boot on the neck of those who don't have status or who don't have a voice. The Old Testament prophets accused God's people oftentimes of mishandling the orphans and the widows. You can think of a voiceless, statusless person who would be easily overlooked and therefore easily a target for mistreatment and oppression, widows and orphans, especially in Jesus' culture, especially in Old Testament days. The prophet says, woe unto you those who take advantage of the orphans and widows. And some people are oppressed or some people are under the boot of something because they made terrible choices. Some people are, you know, they made terrible choices and they, now they find themselves, you know, living with the consequences that come to bear in their life and they're living with those choices. But a lot of people, a lot of people are victims of institutional systems that keep people oppressed. Systems like discrimination. Systems like an imbalance in the distribution of power and resource. Systems like racism, sexism, classism. Now listen, if you're willing to ignore that these factors have deep, lasting, meaningful impacts on an individual status, listen, read a book. If you are willing to deny that things like slavery and things like segregation, years and years of that, having put some people at a disadvantage, even presently, if you're unwilling to recognize that, then come and talk to me. You can have a long talk about that. You're unwilling to admit that those systems and those things that were okay legally put all these people on the starting line, but only some people got to start when the gun went off and years and years and decades later, everybody else got to start the race. If you don't think there's a gap between people because of institutions and systems, listen, you got another thing coming. you got another thing coming. And yes, some people have made bad cho choices, and yes, some people continue to make bad choices, but there are systems that exist in this world, unjust systems, unjust institutions that God challenges us to speak out against and to deal with. Because he's, Jesus has come to release the oppressed. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, and if we're going to extend his kingdom and do his will and do his works on this earth, then we, have, we need to be about the business that Jesus was about. We need to do the stuff that he did. We need to hate the stuff that he hates. We need to push back and beat back the things that he pushed back and beat back. Listen, I told you, once you know better, you got to do better. And for many of us, until recently, until this very morning, these types of things weren't even on our radar. And listen, there's no shame in that. You're not on the hook for that. But once we understand that there are things that exist in our world that oppress people, that keep people under the wheel of oppression and injustice, we've got to say, man, is there something in my power? Is there something in my power to do to start to chip away at this thing? What can I do in my world, in my place, with my influence, with my voice, with my purchasing power? What can I do to begin to release the oppressed? Jesus says, I also claim, came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Slaves were freed, as I said earlier, every 50 years. Economic and indentured slaves freed, their debts forgiven. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome, especially if you were a slave. 
And what Jesus basically says is, I come to establish a spiritual, physical, but especially a social rule that will knock out injustice. Will knock out injustice. For those of you who have gone through the beginning class and those of you who've been to our website, you looked at our priorities, you looked at our values, and you see on there that social justice is on there, and oftentimes I just said to my wife, you know what, we need to just take that off of there. I just don't know how to live that out. I'm very insecure about that even being on the list. But as I begin to read Stearns' book and just begin to wrestle with this, I just realize there's plenty I can do. There's plenty I can do to help Jesus tear down systems of social injustice. There's plenty I can do. There's plenty I can do. When I look at these three realms, when I look at the spiritual realm, which is vitally important, when I look at the physical realm, which is vitally important, when I look at the social realm that is unmistakably important and central to the message and the mission of Jesus Christ, and therefore the mission of this church, and therefore the mission of each and every individual here, I imagine if we took that seriously, and if we begin to live that out, I just imagine what the results would look like. I would imagine, just imagine what would happen. You know, Jesus lays out his mission. Jesus lays out what he values. He makes it clear in other parts of the Spirit, in the Scriptures, that we are the vehicle that he's chosen to use to get this stuff done in the earth. And I just imagine what might happen if we really, through us, God's kingdom influenced the spiritual, physical, in the social realms that we can impact in our lives? What if we took serious the reality that Jesus' mission and his kingdom wanted to affect and impact and influence every aspect of the world we live in? Every single aspect. That no aspect of who we are, no aspect of the world around us would go untouched and uninfluenced by Christ's mission lived out through us. What if we really took that seriously? What if we took that seriously? What if we allowed that to create a culture of compassion and justice and do what Jesus emphasized, and that is helping the neediest of those? We turned our attention from creating little couches of comfort for us, but rather we tried to cushion the seats of the the most impoverished folks, those that are most destitute, those that are uh, uh, without status or without a voice. What if we shifted our attention to the least of these, to those that can't do for themselves? What if we decided to join him in his mission to seek mercy and justice for the poor, the weak, the burdened, and oppressed? I'm telling you, that probably will be a harder life than what you're living now. You'll probably have less disposable resource than you have right now. You'll probably find that to really shop smart and to not do business with organizations that have terrible labor practices and employ children to work all sorts of hours and under dangerous conditions, you might find that your choices might get a little narrower. You might find that it's not as easy to ignore the people that need our help. You might find yourself taking more risk. You might find yourself putting yourself more often in, in harm's way. You know, life might get a little messy for you. But either we believe this stuff or we don't. Either this is the mission that we're supposed to live out or we don't. And if you don't, well, that's for you to decide. 
to deal with. But I think God is calling us to embrace Christ's mission fully. Worship team, you can come up. And we're going to sort of break these things out specifically as we jog through this series. But as you spend time with God this week and trust in his love, I think that he will begin to deal with you in specific areas of your life. I think as you spend time with Jesus, specifically as it relates to this subject and his mission and how you're supposed to live that out, the Lord will begin to highlight aspects of your life, places that you hadn't considered before, practices and considerations that you've never given any thought before. I think the Lord will, in his mercy and his goodness, will reveal to you if you approach him with a sincere heart. I'll tell you, God has already challenged me in significant ways. I've had several conversations with my wife this week about things that we have to do differently in our own personal life as it relates to our resources and how we shop and all these sorts of things. Man, and some of these things will be very uncomfortable for us. But it also makes me think about things that we do right here in this church, things that we offer right now that care for the people that God care for the most, that many of us, many of us, simply leave on the table. Opportunities to go to restoration, to care for the poor in simple ways that all you have to do is basically just show up and smile at folks. Many of us just say, you know, I'm going to sleep on Saturday. I want to do something else. That's not important to me. It's an embarrassing number of us have signed up to go and shovel the snow of people who are shut in and can't do it themselves. I, I, I can't understand can't understand it. I'm going to shut this thing down before I say too much. Can't understand it. This is who we are, folks. This is what we do. This is what we do. I say what I'm telling you to do. This is what we do. And we do a real good job, generally speaking, but I think that what we'll discover is that God is challenging us to do more and to do better. Not so that somebody can pat us on the back, but so that we can look at God's word and say, you know what, we live that. That's us. We're doing that. That's who we are. So listen, I welcome you on this journey with me. It's going to be life change. It's going to be good. Try not to miss any of this. I think God will absolutely turn our world upside down. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for your good news, Lord. That a person in this room, God, that this good news doesn't deeply impact. God, we owe a debt to you that we cannot pay, and you've forgiven that debt. We are spiritually poor, and you, and you give us status, and you give us voice, and you say we matter, Lord. That changes the game for us, Father. God, would you help us to pay for the mercy and the grace and the justice, God, that you've shown us? God, would you leave no stone unturned in our hearts and in our lives as it relates to this stuff? Would you radically change our lives? May we never be the same. God, I pray that you would mobilize us as a church to continue to be your hands and feet, not just in ways that get us in a newspaper, not just in ways that are comfortable and convenient for us, not just in ways, Lord, that leave us with plenty of resource uh, to do whatever we want with, Lord, but in the ways that matter to you, would you show us how to be those people, how to do those things? God, would you transform us from the inside out? May we love what you love. May we hate what you hate. Would you break our hearts, dear Lord, for the things that break yours? We ask these things sincerely in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.